Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing great, David. Uh, this was a super fun show. I'm glad that Udi was down the live stream. I think that was one of the most successful live streams that we've done. But if you didn't tune into the live stream, we got uh, Udi, who is a notorious uh, kind of a Twitter troll. He especially trolls the Ethereum community and other token communities. Uh, and generally speaking, I think he's a nice guy. I've met him in person and he was really nice on the podcast. Um, he is technical and uh, brings an interesting voice. He's more of a Bitcoiner, brings an interesting voice to the Bitcoin community. Um, and I, th I personally think that he has a lot of value, but I know there is some vitriol uh, towards him. David, how did you feel about getting Udi on the podcast? Yeah, when I first invited him on, I, I wasn't totally convinced that it was the right move. Um, but then on the podcast, or just in face face to face, if you count you know a podcast as face to face, it, he was a different person than what you see on Twitter. Uh, and so you know the the conversation that occurred after amongst me and my Ethereum bros uh, was, was pretty interesting. Uh, I got some 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 people on Twitter were very positive about the episode. They said that. Um, be Udi being on POB was very humanizing and it was nice to see the person behind the Twitter. At the same time, I got a lot of feedback saying that uh, they don't trust, they don't trust his, uh, his uh, front facing image. Um, and there's just, there's just, it's impossible to reconcile the, the message or the messages that he sends on Twitter with what he says uh, on, on the POB live stream. Uh, and I, I do believe there, my personal opinion is there is some sort of discrepancy there. Like at the end of this episode, he says, I love Ethereum. I think it has potential. Um, but if you see all of his tweets, there isn't ever one positive thing about Ethereum. And it just seems to be one massive, massive troll. Uh, he's a comical human being. He, he loves to be funny. He, he doesn't really take anything seriously. Um, but I, I think it was, I think it's interesting seeing both sides. Uh, so this is really more of a, a personality or a character, uh, episode where most of our other interviews are interviews about projects. Um, and so, uh, you know, use your own judgment and you can, you can tell who Udi is from either POV or his tweets, but it's one, one of, one of them's right. One of them's wrong. And I'm not sure which run, but I'll leave that up to the listener. Uh, but before we get into all of that, let's talk about our sponsors. Our first sponsor is eToro. You guys know how it goes. eToro is one of the most important crypto exchanges in the world. They recently brought their services and their exchange and trading products to the United States. And the most unique thing about them is their copy trader features. Essentially, what you can do is you can hop onto eToro. And if you want a little bit of exposure to a more active trading style, you can search search through a list of fairly uh, well-known traders and and choose to get some exposure to them with just one click of the mouse. You don't actually have to do any of the TA or look at any of the fundamentals. You can kind of have the active trading strategy exposure. Of course, I always like to stack sats and you can do that using eToro as well. You can buy Bitcoin or your favorite cryptocurrencies and then pull it off of the exchange and actually withdraw it into your own hardware wallet. So eToro is a one-stop shop for you know all the kind of crypto exposure that you want. B.tc backslash eToro POV. Again, that is B.tc backslash eToro POV. So that way they know we sent you there. Speaking of eToro, eToro is a previous customer of our next sponsor, uh, Quantstamp. 
Quantstamp is the premier smart contract auditing firm in the crypto space. They probably have the biggest resume of previous clients that they have audited, including MakerDAO, including eToro, and also some of the newest clients out there, such as Sablier, Pool Together, RDI. Uh, Quantstamp's uh, ex expertise and hands-on experience with smart contract auditing is none other in the space. And this is only going to become more and more important as Ethereum grows. If you have an application or a dApp in the Ethereum space and you are using or controlling or managing users' funds, you need to get it audited, which means you need to go to expertaudits.com and get that smart contract reviewed. Uh, you can see their suite of services on their website. Quantstamp, thank you so much for sponsoring POV Crypto. Really like you guys as a sponsor. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Udi Wertheimer. Udi Wertheimer, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, who are you? Who are you? That's like... <laughs> What my parents usually ask me, <laughs> um, who am I? So I'm, I'm a freelance developer, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's the, the, the what. Um, I've been, I don't know, I guess, kind of on and off interested in Bitcoin since probably 2014, maybe a little earlier than that. Um, so you're technical? I, was, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, comparison yeah, to me and Christian, at least. So yeah, I've been back back then. I I was working at I don't know like eBay and PayPal and so on. I was so that was interesting because I I was on a team that was building like the mobile app for PayPal. So that was a long time ago, but still, it feels better than most of the mobile wallets these days for like cryptocurrencies, right? Um, like in user experience. And um, I later joined a startup in Israel called Kolu, which was maintaining um, a colored coin protocol for Bitcoin. And which, of course, so if you don't know, colored coins is kind of like a really bad version of ERC-20. Um, it existed before, but it, you know, it never caught on. Um, and we, you know, we looked into a lot of possible like use cases for it, and it was pretty early on. And a lot of times, I feel these days like, okay, these are the things we <laughs> we talked about back then, and we didn't think they're that great then, and I still don't think they're that great now. <laughs> but let's see. Um, and yeah, and I guess around 2017, I started doing like, you know, more independent freelance stuff. That's okay, it. so the most of the majority of your professional life is based on Bitcoin, you would say, or or crypto? No, no, I wouldn't no. say that. No, um, probably oh, okay. you know probably only like the the last three years, I guess. Oh, I mean, like currently, like today, like what you're working on oh, is mostly yeah, Bitcoin yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So, what what is your stance on assets, the crypto assets? Like, are you a 99 plus percent Bitcoin maximalists? Like, are, are you do only believe in Bitcoin, everything else going to zero? Like, where are you on that like spectrum of asset beliefs? Well, prices can't go to zero because we define prices like what, what we pay the, the, the last trade 
for for some asset, so it can't be zero because then there's no trade. So prices can never be zero. Um, but uh, what you can have is like zero or near zero liquidity at a, at a given point in time. And definitely some assets have that, right? Um, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with all of them. I mean, what do we... I do own assets that aren't Bitcoin, right? I own crypto like, assets. I own stocks. What's what's a crypto asset? Crypto assets are uh, assets that are secured by cryptography on a public, open, permissionless, distributed system. Right. So, like, I don't know, like, like EOS. Do you consider that an open, permissionless system? Yeah, yeah, I would consider that in that category. Or at least what about like? USDT. USDT is a crypto asset. Uh, I see your point there. I see your point there. Um, I mean, you, I, you could, I mean, if, if, if the, the definition is large enough, then yes, I own like, you know, I own US dollars on my bank account. It's secured by a cryptography website. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's when we can use the generic term blockchain, uh, a blockchain native token. And so USDT is not a native token, but EOS is a native token. Do you like do, do, how, where, where are you on your beliefs of blockchain native tokens? Um, I don't see a reason to be bullish on most of, I mean, you, you can try giving me like examples. I don't know. I, the, the ones I can think of, I, I don't see a reason to be bullish on them. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So Bitcoin specifically, I don't think, I think the blockchain part is like the, the, the least interesting thing about it. Probably a, I would classify it as a drawback. <laughs> it's the, you okay, know. but Bitcoin, the asset. Right. So Bitcoin as an asset, I think it right. has some characteristics that are similar to maybe gold, um, but in uh -huh. a digital way, I don't think there's anything else like it. So I think it's, it might be useful and maybe not. It's an experiment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we'll see. I think it might be useful. I think it is already useful for some people. So, yeah. So you seem to be in just no man's land. Uh, whereas like most people in this crypto space kind of wear a flag, wear a banner, and they align themselves with uh, certain beliefs. You kind of seem to be like a lone wolf. Uh, is that, would you say that's accurate? I mean, I find that usually people would say that I'm not in their camp. <laughs> So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if, if you ask like people in Ethereum, I think a lot of them would say that I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, right? But if you ask Bitcoiners, they would say, no, he's a shitcoiner. If you go to, um, I don't know, uh, I, I've had people in various, so this will be surprising, but I've had multiple people say that I'm an Ethereum maximalist, <laughs> which was surprising to me as well. But uh, your, your I guess, Twitter yeah. conversation is certainly an Ethereum maximalist. That's a, a Twitter maximalist, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. I think most Bitcoiners consider you a Bitcoiner. Yeah, I guess, I guess, but definitely not. I mean, yeah, but I, I still think, you know, there are a lot of things that I think that like I constantly talk about Tron, for example, which I'm, I'm not even sure myself why I do that. So yeah, well, um, you, you do it because of for the laws. It, it's, it's a farce, right? Like, you know, that Tron's a farce and that's why you talk about it. Right. I mean, in what way is it a farce? It's a farce as, as much as Ethereum is, I think. Yeah, so that's the farce right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's what, what we're... 
why did you try it did you like try it i have not ever interacted so with how why i tried both oh man uh, I, I can't believe i said that i was trying to maintain like uh, maybe i never tried tron thing but uh, but no but i tried a lot of stuff i tried mm -hmm. both and you know the tron is like a fork of ethereum basically yeah yeah uh -huh. so why do you think ethereum is superior to tron uh the community just and between. and well i could i could go on a huge list um, i mean tron is a community too yeah it does uh it doesn't have the one i'm exposed to at least so maybe maybe there is a uh, asian language speaking community of tron that i just have zero exposure to and maybe it's actually just way bigger than ethereum's i would have no idea um the my thesis is always that the whole point of crypto is for decentralized open finance and whatever blockchain supports that is going is going to capture my attention. Now, Tron has some subset of that, but they really have like the gaming gambling side of open finance. And that's just much smaller than open finance at large. And they and also don't have small. I mean, like DeFi and Ethereum is pretty small. Like it's really uh, small. DeFi in comparison to the rest of Ethereum. No, in comparison to other financial services that use cryptocurrencies. Oh yeah, uh, uh huh. Yeah, I would say, but I would say it's it's small. But if you take in its uh, rate of change and also its mind share, I would say it's one of the biggest things in crypto. I would say it's in the top three or four things in crypto. I would I would say that's. Um, vastly overrepresented. Um, I mean, it's, um, there are so many people who don't care about DeFi right now, <laughs> sure. you know? I, I mean, it's, there, there are interesting things going on, sure, but um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of interesting things going on other places too. So if you, you know, if you see um, when Binance launches a futures product, for example, then you can see there's very real interest, very real trading volumes immediately um, mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not all fake. A lot of it is real. Um, Finance is good. That's with smaller products too. Um, and on the other hand, with, you know, with DeFi, it's like probably at least two orders of magnitude smaller, at least, mm -hmm. if not more. So mm -hmm. how can we say that it's, you know, you know, mindshare, whatever? I, I, I just don't see that. Binance right, likes so, Tron too. What's that? Binance likes Tron too. Yeah. Binance likes whatever pumps. <laughs> well, like whatever that's, so, that's legitimate, though, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, like, the reason why I think we can say that DeFi is more legit than Tron, even though, like, Tron as a whole might be bigger than DeFi, is just because we understand, in, in the same way that, like, Bitcoiners in 2010 and 2011 thought Bitcoin was going to be this huge, massive thing, even though it wasn't at that particular time. Like, you can look at the architecture and you can look at the progression and look at the trajectory of DeFi and say, like, this is going to be very big. Uh, and so it's simply a matter of the fundamental answer, answer to the question, what is DeFi, that captures so many people's mind share. And the reason why, like, Binance can go and open up some new product that has an equal DeFi correlate and all of a sudden on day one, Binance's product is 10 times as large 
is because that's just so much closer to the current system that we have. Like it doesn't have any of the UI UX problems. It doesn't have any of the user onboarding problems. And so DeFi is getting that big, even when there are all of those problems and people believe in its trajectory. So that's why it, I think it's real. What, what if Binance just solves problems for real people? You just, you know, just satisfy the demand for what people want right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people, well, they are, they are doing that, right? So maybe that's the reason it's bigger. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not like because the other the, reasons. The UI UX problems is huge. Right. And so they are solving that, but they're not solving just UI. You, they're not solving just a UI UX problem. They're solving a market problem. They're solving, you know, they're, they're satisfying the demand for people to have a place to trade, to have a place where mm-hmm. liquidity exists. That's not just about UI and UX. That's, mm-hmm that's a whole lot right. of things that sure. by the way, that, that businesses have been trying to solve and improve upon for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years in the space for now. And it's been constantly mm-hmm. improving. So, you know, you go to an exchange today, a large exchange like Binance or the other derivative exchanges, they are much better than what they were in the past. There, there's real progression there. And I feel like DeFi stuff, is much you know they're, they're like at the pretty much the starting line mm-hmm. and there's such a long way to go to get to compete with something like binance or bitmax or whatever right now yeah so I, why I, do- I will totally can uh admit that binance bitmax exchanges like that are way closer to DeFi than than anything we've seen previously except for actual except for actual DeFi. like if the if the world transitions to a binance system like it will still be a huge improvement that was enabled by you know this whole crypto revolution uh but it's still not all the way there and it still doesn't solve the trust problem because you know it's a central authority and so like we can and that's what DeFi is that that Binance isn't, or the promise of DeFi is. And I know that, that you'll contend with that, is that DeFi still tries to go right at the trust problem. Binance doesn't solve the Mt. Gox issue, but DeFi does. Right. So Binance has a different approach. They're saying mm-hmm. we're going to spend a lot of money on you know, security and mm-hmm. compliance and so on. And we're going to try to attack it from that vector. And they've been doing it very successfully too. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you could say, right, Binance recently had like a $40 million hack, 50 million. Right. I, mean, I don't remember the exact numbers. And that seems like from an internal employee. Probably. I mean, probably yeah. some, you know, probably some connection to someone internal, right? Some privileged um, information, yeah. But, um, but they made customers whole they make so much money that they're able to do that. And so that's, you know, that's risk management. That's fine, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and on the other hand, do DeFi products really solve the, the trust problem? I mean, it seems that they do not now. And because, you know, most of those like MakerDAO, Compound, the other ones, each of them have some way that that the the kind of the company or the foundation, whatever it is, can control the funds. So mm-hmm. then, what's the point? And I know that some people will say, "Well, it's going to improve." I just don't see that right now. And keep in mind, I've been, you know, so people think that I'm this maximalist who only cares about Bitcoin, but I, I've been 
pretty, you know, I've been involved in some way in what's going on in Ethereum for since its inception. I've been following what's going on. And people have been saying those things that we're going to solve the Oracle problem since before day one, not even since day one, since before Ethereum even started. And we don't have, we, we, we're, new, we're not any closer, in my opinion, to a solution. So why should we believe that it's going to be better? Yeah, so um, I, I disagree that we haven't gotten any better. So the, the maker oracles are significantly improved from where they started off with, as in there are numerous parties in the Ethereum ecosystem that are all part of the MakerDAO oracle system rather than MakerDAO themselves. But so we that, could do that. that we could do that ten years ago. I mean, it's true that MakerDAO started in a really bad place for some reason, but they didn't have to. So they improved from the really bad place they were at. But you know, this is not. You know, multi-sig existed since forever. What's new here? So, did, did you happen to read my Two Faces of Ethereum article that came out like a month ago? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, I've read some of your posts. I'm not sure because mm -hmm. I'm not sure about the titles. So maybe right. So it's an it's a analogy of, of what Ethereum is. And so the, the post has like a robot face next to a human, like human face. And the, the thesis of the post is that uh, there is a spectrum between fully autonomous trustless applications and fully trusted applications. Just like the same old trusted model on it, uh, that we had in the old world just brought onto Ethereum that uses Ethereum's uh, ecosystem, like my company Realty. Tokenized assets of the real world, you guys got to trust us to to use our stuff. Uh, but then there's Uniswap, which is a fully autonomous, fully decentralized model that no one can, uh, controls the funds, et cetera. Uh, and then, then there's the whole spectrum in, in between the two. And the thesis of the article is that because applications can exist anywhere, there is also likely a sweet spot somewhere along that spectrum. And the uh, the influences of survival of the fittest and uh, you know hostile environments, governments coming in to an application like MakerDAO and saying, hey, you can't operate, and then the government successfully or unsuccessfully bringing down that application will move that sweet spot. But ultimately, there are, is still a place where applications can grow and thrive with an, uh, uh, the right amount of human-robot hybrid and, and still succeed in bringing out the the DeFi uh, promise to the world, uh, and maybe that sweet spot. High, that sweet spot is fully autonomous applications like Uniswap. That doesn't, and, and like any application with any human involvement is not going to work. That just that doesn't mean that like Ethereum is not going to. Ethereum isn't going to grow. It just means that it's just going to be harder because applications that are fully computerized are way harder to make, but they are still possible. And so I, my the thesis is that because Ethereum is an adaptable system, it will find the sweet spot and grow from there. Um, yeah, it, that, you know, it makes sense. But the thing is, there are multiple systems that are adaptable. And I guess the Bitcoin, the Bitcoiner approach would be to say that um, as long as you have a hard money that, that people can trust, then you can build on top of it. And it's true that you, you can't necessarily build everything on top of it, but you can build what people need and want. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what it looks like so far. So it's true that, um, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there, there used to be uh, 
uh, so-called, what, what was it, the FOMO 3D Ponzi game in the mm -hmm. past? So I don't know how you would build that on Bitcoin, for example. Right. There are definitely classes, although it was broken in its own way, right? With, you know, minor front running and, and censorship and whatever, but, but... I wouldn't call that broken. I would just call that somebody was really smart. Yeah, 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 sure. That's, mm -hmm. that's another way to put it. Um, but I mean, I don't, anyway, I don't see how you would build exactly that on Bitcoin. The thing is, I think that what people want um, is just a different class of applications. And that's just mm -hmm. based on what we see in demand right now. It's not, you know, I'm not making things up. I'm looking at what the market wants. I'm looking at what the market uses. And it seems like that's what the market wants. Yeah, uh, but I would also uh, put an asterisk there saying that that's those applications the centralized applications that use hard money are a hundred times easier to build than the autonomous decentralized applications. Yeah. And so like, that's why Bitcoin has the lead that it has is a, it came five years earlier than it's only viable competitor, which is Ethereum. Uh, and it's the, the products on top of Bitcoin that do the same things that DeFi does are just a hundred times easier to build if you build them in a centralized fashion. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that. Go ahead. That's why that's why they're better, though. <laughs> that's like what they have going for them. That they're easy to <laughs> right build now, and yeah. to satisfy the demand. That's not a you know that's not a negative thing. That's a mm -hmm. good thing. Yeah. Something to add on to this is uh, I don't think that there's very much proof yet that many of the DeFi applications are any less centralized. Uh, they're just kind of jumping through a bunch of hoops. Um, and then on top of that, you know, at the beginning, Udi talked about how the Bitcoin blockchain itself is probably the least interesting thing about Bitcoin. Like the blockchain is to create and secure the unit. And then that unit mm -hmm. can be utilized in many different ways. And I think that people in the Ethereum community pigeonhole themselves into like, this like Ethereum def uh, definition of like how to utilize and build on a blockchain. Um, and they kind of miss the bigger picture of, you know, how is the world using the Bitcoin unit um, and, and moving from there. And I think that the Bitcoin unit is being used extremely successfully to build a ton of different solutions and applications around the world. Yeah. The only, the only thing I would ask you to change about that is that you said Ethereum DeFi apps are not actually all that decentralized and they have some sort of backdoor or some sort of problem with them that makes them not that much different than a website. At least Ethereum applications have a path to getting to a fully decentralized, fully autonomous model. Like all Compound has to do is plug its backdoor. That's like one transaction. And so that's, they're not there's that an, far There's away. an Oracle to worry about too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and once you start thinking about the Oracle, you usually, even when, you know, people sometimes say, okay, we'll use Uniswap as an Oracle and that has its own set of problems. But even if you go there, you're probably going to want to say, ah, well, we need some way to replace the Oracle if that's, if we come to that. So mm -hmm. we'll still retain some control there. It's a really hard problem. Um, and, and I think one interesting thing that I, I find is that a lot of times we like, you know, people like us or um, people who have like some engineering background, we like to think about all problems as, the, as if they are engineering problems. But um, actually this Oracle problem is not unique to um, Ethereum and smart contracts at all. Um, it's a very old problem for financial institutions. If you want to have some derivative of any kind, you have to watch some price action on some source and you have to decide which source that is and that source is going to get attacked by speculators who are trying to manipulate your thing 
that's like a very real problem. The financial industry has been dealing it, with it for many, many years. Um, it's not new and they don't have like a perfect solution for it. Definitely not a, a solution that would allow them to like remove themselves from the equation. They have to constantly, you know, track it and sometimes make changes. You see that all the time. Um, so I don't know. It seems like, you know, if there was a solution to that, someone would probably have found it by now. It's a very um, integral part of the problem, I think. Well, I think that's where Ethereum's composability really changes the game between what we were able to do in the old world, which had zero composability, uh, and Ethereum, which has all the composability. And so like Uniswap, you're correct. Uniswap is an oracle. It's one oracle. It's not many oracles, but it is the semblance of what could happen when more applications get built. And every time, and this was also in my two faces of Ethereum article, every time we build something like Uniswap that is fully decentralized, uh, fully trustless, fully autonomous. Uh, and you know, it's it, the best thing about Uniswap is that promises to be there into the future unless Ethereum crashes, so, which means it's dependable, which means, and, and it's like once applications like Uniswap get built, it makes building other applications a lot easier. So the, the synthetics platform, super trusted platform, it does have a path to decentralization, but it wouldn't have been able to have been built without Uniswap. Like if you can, you couldn't have synthetics before you had Uniswap. And uh, the existence of Uniswap made synthetics possible. And so the, the belief is that there is every time the new useful application like Uniswap that you can depend on gets built, it makes building other applications way easier. And so I actually think that the solution to the Oracle problem comes out of a set of applications like Uniswap that all produce their own Oracle rather than being an Oracle, produce an Oracle. And then all of a sudden we have a, a network of decentralized Oracles built on Ethereum. And, and I, that's my most optimistic path forward for solving this Oracle problem. And that specifically comes from the composability of these Ethereum applications. Right, so I guess one thing about composability is that it's not really new. I mean, we had like APIs for traditional web services since forever, and you could compose mm -hmm. them together. Actually, a lot, of, you know, a lot of innovations, financial and otherwise, in the internet space came from this kind of composability. Um, and I, I mean, if you look at, so if you look at something like Bitmex, obviously Bitmex plugs into APIs from Bitstamp and Binance and Kraken and whatever to pull prices from there. They don't need to ask for permission. They just do that and it works. But sometimes people manipulate data on or manipulate trades on other smaller platforms like Bitstamp, for example, just to make the price react in a way that would affect BitMEX, which has a lot more volume. So the same thing could happen with, say, Uniswap, right? Let's say you build uh, an app like MakerDAO which I believe is currently bigger um, volume-wise than, than uh, Uniswap is, I believe. I'm not sure. I think it is. Um, what do you mean volume? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's actually kind of hard to compare them, uh, to find yeah. the right metric to compare them. Um, I don't know, but whatever. I think it, it feels like there's like more activity on MakerDAO, but I'm not even sure. Oh, how I would to say, yeah. That. Mm -hmm. Major, MakerDAO um, is a lar larger application, yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
you could imagine if MakerDAO uses uh, Uniswap for its as its um, oracle, then you could mm-hmm. imagine that someone would um, manipulate the oracle, the Uniswap pool just to get, you know, to get some benefits on the MakerDAO side. And that's again, that's not new. That's not some. That's not a problem that that Ethereum invented. That's like a real problem. Um, mm-hmm. And and usually the fix to that is to be flexible, is to be able to you know, to, to, to have some central authority who has the permission to say, to detect that something is going on and, and react to that. Um, mm-hmm. Some human factor that can do that. And I don't see how you do that in the Ethereum space. It's fine that you have composability, but, you know, everyone has composability and it's not enough. We know that it's not enough. We still have problems we have to fix. Well, the, the fix for that is the medianizer. And so it put, there's like, I think 22 or 26 different oracles that put price feeds into MakerDAO. One of them is Uniswap. I think one of them is Uniswap. Uh, and the idea is that, uh, you know, the more Uniswaps you get, if you get at least 50% of those price fees are Uniswap grade applications, well, then we can start to really call this application trustless. And and at the same time, it's, it's one of those things like 26 is a Recently, decently big number, 26 different teams or applications, like the 0x decentralized exchange is one of those, Kyber is one of those, a um, couple others that I'm forgetting. Like all of these teams are, all these central teams are putting in their central price feeds into the MakerDAO medianizer. But like these things, these teams are also pretty distributed. It kind of feels like, like mining pools for Bitcoin. Like if they're all over the world and they're all independent, and they're all, you know, outside of, you know, most jurisdictions. That that is better than just one central company like Binance telling you what the price is. Right. So, but that's right. But but again, so if you use Bitmex, Bitmex doesn't just take the the prices from one source. It it mm-hmm. it also has like this weighted average thing from mm-hmm. a few exchanges. And if you know, if they wanted to do a medianizer thing, they could. They they just don't find it useful, but they could do it. I mean, trivially. And I, I find that it's like, it's just multi-sig. You're just describing multi-sig right now. So you have like 26 companies who are in charge of keeping the funds basically by, by reporting prices correctly. And if they choose to report prices incorrectly, they can take at least a large, you know, a large portion of the funds. So if I, you know, if BitMEX tomorrow decides to say, okay, we, we're going to take all of the funds that we keep in cold storage and we're going to give it to, 26 companies to, to, to maintain in a, in a multi-sig um, account, then is that now considered DeFi because there are 26 companies who are in charge of it? I mean, sounds I think... Sounds like liquid. Yeah, it sounds pretty much like liquid, yeah. Um, so, okay, so we're coming to the conclusion that to some degree the things on Ethereum are maybe not as novel as many people, many DeFiers think they are. I still think there's a lot of uh, other things that we haven't really like touched on, such as sign-in, like email address and password is not relevant in, uh, in Ethereum's DeFi. And I know Bitcoiners really like privacy. And so uh, a fully, a fully uh, developed DeFi e- ecosystem would allow someone to manage their finances in a fully private manner. Um, and, and it seems like other... it's the other way around right now. Like if you Elaborate. if you use DeFi, you kind of broadcast all of your financial activity to the world. It's the kind of the opposite of keeping it private. Uh, I mean, you broadcast all of your all of a, an Ethereum wallet's crypto activity to the world, but not necessarily yours. 
I mean, sure, whatever is in the DeFi system, you broadcast to everyone. So if right. you take a trade on, on, I don't know, synthetics, if you land on compound, if you, whatever, you broadcast all of it to the entire world, basically. While if you use um, BitMEX or what, I'm, I keep saying BitMEX, but it could be anything. Um, so if you use any of these exchanges to land or to trade or whatever, then you don't, you, you keep most of well, the data relatively well, private. Well, BitMEX knows your name and it keeps that transaction private to them. It's and DeFi, the they don't know no. your name and they announce it to everyone. So specifically, BitMEX knows the name that you tell them. You could tell them any name you yeah. want. Sure. Um, and you can create multiple accounts to like separate your activity to even hide it to some degree from them. But I would prefer, you know, I would prefer to have my activity revealed to a single party than to everyone. If I have to make a choice, then that seems like the trivially better choice. David, how did you get your ether? Uh, the ether that I buy? Yeah. Dollars? Yeah, through wire. Yeah. Uh, and, then how, and then how, how did you get your, have you mixed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you use Tornado Cash? Not for all of or it, other but ones. for some. Okay. Mm -hmm. Have you ever compromised your, your known or main Ethereum account? Oh, all the time. And then I swap it out. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's like, you know, it's, it's not trivial to, uh, to keep that ether account private. And then on top of that, um, you're constantly broadcasting. To, it is trivial to reprivatize all of your funds. So it's trivial I to mean, dox yourself and it's trivial to make it private again. What's, what's, I mean, I don't know. Privatize your funds. Once I know that you have 10,000 ethers, I know that mm -hmm. you have them. You can't delete this information for my... Well, in the know. past, yeah, but like, if, what was that? That could have been five years ago, three years ago. Like, you don't know what's happened in between now and then, and neither do I. Sure. So you can, you, that's, you that's always true. That's always true. But once you leak information, you can't take it back. And what yeah. DeFi applications do, they continuously leak information of their users. It's true that maybe at some point their users will stop using them and stop leaking information. But as long as they're using it, they're leaking information publicly to everyone. Yeah, I, I don't understand why Bitcoiners really care about this so much. Like a one dox of your funds <laughs> that happened like three years ago, like maybe it's not ideal, but like what's the worst that can happen? Oh, you want to you wanna go to the absolute worst that can yeah. happen? Yeah, what's the worst so thing that can happen? So someone can like kidnap your kids and you know, take their fingers off one by one. That would be pretty bad. Yeah, but what's that? How is that specifically enabled by crypto? Like, rich people today who are U.S. dollar rich or equities rich or whatever, like we all know who those people are. No, you know some of them. You really don't know all of them. You know the ones that are okay with having you know it, but a lot of them don't want you to know. A lot of them don't want you to know. And you don't know. It, with that being said, crypto kind of enables anyone to get anyone that is, uh, even if they don't have crypto, uh, anyone who is perceived to be wealthy to put them in danger and then force them to buy Bitcoin or buy some other trusted crypto asset and forced to pay that hostage. So, I mean, like the world is just changing, you know, regardless, even if you hold or don't hold it. Any no, for, uh, for sure. For sure. But I think that the, the, I think the question is, why do people care about their privacy, their financial privacy. So the answer is there are, there are good reasons to care about that. If you leak uh, financial information, what I said is one 
problem. There are other problems. Um, but you expose yourself to a lot of problems. And it's true that those problems are, you know, relevant whether you're using Bitcoin or not. But, you know, so what? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can give you like simpler examples for, you know, um, people who are not ultra high net worth individuals. So just, you know, just for example, let's say you get paid in ethers or in bitcoins or whatever it is, and that's your monthly salary. And um, you have a landlord that you pay rent every month to, and suddenly they see that your, um, uh, your salary increased. So they know that they can negotiate a better rent from you. So that's bad for you. You're going to want to hide that. It's not like you're doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything illegal, but you're going to want to right. hide that information. There are multiple yeah. reasons why you, you want to do that. It, it, seems, it seems like a very niche, uh, like all of these things are plausible, like it could happen in real life. To the degree that they happen to a systemic amount of the population, I'm very skeptical of. Well, they, they don't happen because, because we don't do that. We don't broadcast our activity to, publicly to the world. That's why they don't happen. I think if, if, and if your landlord would know that you had to receive the raise, they're absolutely going to renegotiate the rent prices with you. If they see yeah, but then you can just move to a different landlord. And he knows your, you know, he knows about your. Who are all these landlords that are giving so many fucks? Like, there's a market rate want, for rent, and you can pay that market rate or not. I mean, they want your money, man. They're gonna do what? Yeah. It's it's basic yeah. negotiation. If you, so if, if you, you don't up, give it to them and you move on, they're gonna lower the price. Like, we're I'm not sure why we're violating the laws of supply and demand here. We're really not. We're really not. We you're not the only. The thing is that if everyone broadcasts their their transactions, then everyone knows about you know, your net worth. So basically, it seems like what you're saying is everyone should be okay with just publishing their bank accounts publicly, mm -hmm. publishing their, this should be fine. No one should care about this. It's okay. And I'm kind of trying to tell you that the entire this financial world depends on <laughs> financial privacy. It's not something that, you know, it's something people really care about. Like a lot of companies really care about that. You know, companies don't want to, a lot of, oftentimes companies don't, don't want to go public because they know they'll have to open their books and that's a competitive disadvantage. They don't want, they don't want to do that. So it's a real thing. It's a very real thing. David and, and Udi, well, correct me if you're wrong or correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying that running a financial system directly on the blockchain is a bad idea. Um, I, I, it seems like it is a bad idea in its current state. I, I don't want to, I'm, I can't tell the future. I don't know if someone is going to come up with a solution that makes everything better and work great. But the way it works right now, it seems really bad. It seems like it's going to hurt you more than it's going to help you. So how are kind of like financial solutions being built um, on top of the Bitcoin stack different than that? Or do you think that they're not? I mean, the, the big difference, I think, and it's not unique to Bitcoin, it's you know, there, there are Ethereum related services that are like that as well, is that you have a centralized service where you deposit your funds and you only leak data to the service operator. You don't leak data to everyone. It's not great, but it's better than nothing. It's, it's similar to the model you have with your bank that most people understand, you know, how it works. They can reason about it and then they don't do mistakes that uh, you might do when all your finances open and, and, and you know, public to everyone to look at and, and you just 
don't necessarily understand what you're revealing and what kind of mistakes you might do when that, that happens. So Bitcoin and not just Bitcoin, maybe many other like cryptocurrencies um, have these services, right? And they're the most popular services, I think for many reasons. One of them is probably that. It's probably not the biggest reason, but it's one of them. How do you feel about the Lightning Network and potential privacy that that can provide and potential composability and, and those kind of things as well? Yeah, so Lightning is is very different. I think it's almost uncomparable to something like MakerDAO and Compound because it's a completely different thing. It's a payment network. It's intended to be to help you pay someone else with Bitcoins or whatever. Um, while, you know, Compound is for making or taking loans and that's a completely different use case. So I don't think Lightning helps you meaningfully in giving loans other than maybe a delivery mechanism for them, which is also not really a great fit. Um, so it's just something else. And obviously you could use Lightning with Ethereum too, if you wanted to. I mean, you could adapt Lightning's work on Ethereum. Um, but anyways, on a privacy perspective, the nice thing about Lightning is that just a lot of the transaction activity is not going to be on the, the chain, which means that it's going to be a little harder to figure out the activity of people. Not necessarily impossible, but definitely harder because it's not going to be just lying there waiting for everyone to look after this. So that, that seems like an obvious benefit. And if I'm paying someone in Bitcoin or receiving Bitcoin, I prefer to do that on Lightning mainly for that reason, just because it feels cleaner. You know, there's no, I, I feel like I'm not leaving information behind me that I don't want other people to not because I'm hiding anything, just because I don't want other people to know everything about me, you know? I think like the long-term bullish case for Ethereum is that, you know, transactions on Ethereum allow a degree of privacy that like we don't even have in the current financial world. So you are, you are generally able to give praise to our current financial system because of the privacy that you are able to achieve from it because you only have one party that knows your transaction history than than you know the whole world uh the 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 bull case for ethereum privacy is that it reduces from one party to zero parties or just or just you uh and so um you know we're not it's not really the most ideal ecosystem right now like DeFi isn't fully decentralized ethereum's privacy uh applications have just uh really gotten started um, but you know, the, the vision that in, in five, 10, 20 years is that, you know, it's, it's an unprecedented level of decentralization. It's an unprecedented level of privacy. Uh, and we're all, we're all work, working towards getting there. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I would say, though, that pretty much any kind of privacy uh, innovation that you could do on top of Ethereum, you could use on top of centralized services. So if you like ZK Snarks, um, you could use that in Ethereum, but you could also use that in Binance. No one seems to demand that right now, and, and I think I have an idea why that is. But if, if, if you want to, you, if, if there's demand for it, Binance could do it. Um, and you could be assured that Binance doesn't have information about a lot of things if you choose to use that. So all of those theoretical innovations, um, you could implement them on, on traditional services too. Hey, Udi, I actually have to, or Udi, I have to jump off in a second here, but I guess my question is, based on what you're seeing right now, 
like what do you think is the most plausible path forward for um, Bitcoin or any other viable crypto money? Um, viable path forward. Uh, scaling use cases, building on top of that kind of thing. It doesn't sound like you think that the the Ethereum DeFi case is, is viable. Yeah, um, my, I know it's not a very popular stance, but my general stance is um, if any of this is useful, and it, it might very well not be, but if any of this ends up being useful to people, um, it's, it's not the type of things that we can rush, right? So maybe people will need censorship-resistant money, and then it will be great if Bitcoin is available to them. Um, I don't think that's something that we can rush by saying, hey, you can use Bitcoin to pay for coffee or whatever. Um, I think that the reason we see things like exchanges having the massive success that they do is because if you wanted to build an exchange like Binance in the traditional world, you would need um, a lot of licensing and you wouldn't be able to just get the money from your customers. So Binance is able to be compliant in the jurisdictions that they are. And they're saying we can accept clients, customers kind of globally, um, but they probably wouldn't be able to process their payments with you know, the, the, the current uh, banking system because they don't want anything to do with that. So Bitcoin helps them to go past the, the payment system problem and get, receive money somehow from their customers. And then Binance isn't breaking the rules because they compliant wherever they're based. Maybe some of their customers are breaking some rules, um, but that's their problem. And Binance doesn't have to you know, think about that. So, and that's, that's a useful kind of framing uh, to have that the, the banking, the current banking system is trying to kind of obliterate. They kind of tried to say, we're going to make sure that everyone is, that no one is breaking the, the rules. And if we have any suspicion, we're not going to allow anything. And that really stifles innovation. So I think that's why um, this type of use case really works in crypto um, because it has a real advantage over exchanges that are not based on Bitcoin. So maybe things like that in the future. I don't know, like, you know, in the past it was dark markets. Maybe in the future it'll be something else. I don't know. So, so it sounds like the key here is regulatory arbitrage more than anything else. I think so. I think it's, you know, basically it's, it's going around censorship. And Jill Carlson has a great article on Coindesk where she says cryptocurrencies are basically to let you do things that other people are trying to stop you from doing. I think that's perfect, a perfect um, way to describe them. Yeah, I would say that's pretty core yeah. to my thesis as well. Very much regulatory arbitrage focused. But um, yeah, I'm going to peace out here. I'm going to let you and David continue, though, because I think this, this is a fascinating conversation. But have a good one. Uh, and thanks for letting me be a part of it. Cool. Peace, Christian. Uh, okay, so I want to I have one last question for you before we wrap things up. Um, if, if somebody's following you on Twitter or in your Telegram, it seems like 90% plus of your attention is based on Ethereum. Uh, why do you love Ethereum so much? Why do you care so much? It's great. Ethereum is great. I mean, yeah, there's, is. there's a ton of entertainment value. I think it's really interesting. I personally find it like super interesting. I think that... Um, so when you... I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it. So when you when you're um, uh, when you're looking at, at the like 
what people consider the bullish case for Ethereum, right? And people would usually say um, it's the community, it's the, the developers, it's the companies building on top of it. And I personally view it pretty much the other way around. I think that the Ethereum community is kind of a liability right now. And, and I know sometimes people say that about Bitcoin, but I'll try to explain why that's entirely different in my view. Um, so in order to make Ethereum, so the, the, like kind of the bull case for Ethereum right now is that you say well, it has a ton of potential. There's a lot of things that are being built on it and you'll be able to reap the rewards in the future. And in order to maintain that, you have to have, you know, a lot of developers on the paywall and a lot of companies invested in, and that's like expensive. And it comes out of, you know, not a lot of pockets, pockets right now, not, not, not out of a lot of people. So there's, you know, consensus and Joe Lubin, there's the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik and, and certain like satellites funds related to that. And, and they're fine funding like a lot of this. I wouldn't say everything, but they find fund a lot of this. And kind of what this means is that they have, they have to keep selling Ethereum just to, so they're either selling it themselves or they're giving it to someone else who's going to sell it in order to fund, you know, people. And my thesis is that the current, you know, it's, you know, it's not a nice, it's not a fun thing to say, but I think that the, the, the Ethereum community is just too large right now. There are a lot of, um, a lot of things being built and they're not creating value, unfortunately. A lot of people building things that are, I don't see how they, they're gonna increase adoption. And that's so expensive that I would expect that it would have to shrink. Um, and I, you know, people laugh at, you know, I say that I short Ethereum and so on, people laugh at that. But I, I think that there's a, there's a real financial opportunity there. That's the truth. And being kind of involved in it and, and watching and tracking it allows me to have a pretty good point of view on what's going on. I feel like I'm kind of immersed. So I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be bearish on Ethereum forever. And I wasn't always, by the way, people tend to think that I, I, I mean, I used to be bullish on Ethereum. So um, being kind of immersed in it makes me feel mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm probably going to be able to say maybe things are changing now. So yeah, that's my answer. So, so your thesis is that like uh, the EF is spending a ton of money funding a bunch of teams. Uh, Joe Lubin, Consensus are selling a bunch of, e of Joe's Ether to pay the payroll for a bunch of teams. We don't yeah. really know what ROI these teams are actually going to produce. There's a lot of, there's a ton of sell pressure from these individuals. And yeah. as a result, and, and the ROI we're getting from these teams is not going to make up for that. And therefore Ether is going to go down. Is that your thesis? Yeah. Okay. That's pretty much it. Okay. So that, is that why you are shorting ETH, ETH BTC or, or say that you are on Twitter? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the, that's the, the main reason. I think that I, I don't think that necessarily Ethereum will never be useful for anything or that necessarily it would never uh, accrue value. But I think at the current mm -hmm. point in time, um, it has some ways to go. It seems like there's a lot of overspending going on a lot mm -hmm. and, and you have to be kind of, you know, you have to be kind of with boots on the ground to notice that because if you're looking, looking from the, you know, from the, the side, then maybe you won't exactly 
know to put put a finger on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I see it. And I know that's not the nicest thing to say, not the nicest thing to hear the, either, but that's how I view it. So, so here's, here's how I view your stance towards Ethereum. Uh, and so uh, in, my, in my Facebook world, in my non-crypto world, in my friends world, people get really frustrated at me because I am like unceasingly criticizing Democrats and <laughs> talking about what the Republicans are doing and why what they're doing is smart and how we should copy that. And people are calling me like a conservative troll. They're calling me like a, you know, a, you know sometimes I get called a racist, and a, a misogynist because I'm aligning myself with the Republicans and saying that the Democrats need to do this. Right. But it's out of the love for the Democrats. And I am not at all a Republican. I've never voted Republican. I'm not ever going to vote Republican probably. Uh, and it's because I want the Democrats to do better and because I believe that the Democrats can do better that I say all these negative things about the Democrats. So that's what I think you're doing. I think you really, really like Ethereum. You just want it to be in a way better shape and form than it actually is. Does that I like resonate? it a lot. I love it. Yeah. I love it. The, the Telegram group that I have, the Telegram channel is called Pro Ethereum Alerts. It's a pro mm-hmm. Ethereum group. I love Ethereum. What's not to love, really? I mean, the, the people are great. Really, I'm not kidding now. The people are great. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're passionate, they're talented, that th- those are good qualities to have. So I just think there's a problem in the financial department, um, which is kind of important. But yeah, I do think that the theory could do better. I, 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 and as I said, I'm, I'm, you know, people think, oh, you were just a religious Bitcoiner. I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I was happy to own Ethereum in the past. I, I'm very happy to not own it right now. <laughs> and I might change my, my, my opinion in the future. I don't know. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end it on. Udi, thanks for coming on POV Crypto. Thanks all for having me. Time. Thank you. Yeah, this was great. Uh, if, if people, if you want to give one last message, one last shout out or tell people where they can follow you, uh, can you let our listeners know? Yeah, so, so the best thing you could do um, if you have any ethers or any interest in Ethereum is to join my broadcast only Telegram channel, which is Ethereum, Pro Ethereum Alerts. So that's t.me slash Pro Ethereum Alerts. Um, no spaces. That's it. You, you'll get all the information you need. You need the contrarian view sometimes, not just mm-hmm. the, you know, not just the, the good stuff, also just some contrarian view. So that's where you get yeah. it. Yeah, no, if you, if you have zero contrarians in your thread, you're doing something wrong. So yeah. I guess, Udi, thanks for being that person. Um, for sure. Guys, thank you, you can for follow the me. podcast at POV CryptoPod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. You can follow Christian at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. Uh, and sorry, he couldn't be here to sign off. All right. Thanks, Udi. Thanks. Bye. Will you deceive?